let's get at it. We are in week three of a new series kicking that we kicked off um, called Love Does. I told you, I think this is probably, I, in fact, I know this is the most important stuff you can learn. I really believe that. Um, and I, we should probably, I mean, there's so much, guys, that I have so much to tell you about this. I could be up here talking about this every Sunday until you don't want to come anymore. But let, let me back up just so you know where we are, because you have to back up in order to understand how we go forward. A few weeks ago, on kickoff Sunday, big kickoff, remember Bounce House, uh, you know, food trucks, great day and all the rest. I, my goal in the time in here was to set a vision for Mendham, for our church home, what, what Jesus was trying to do. Like, if you have a goal, right, you're aiming at it and you're trying to achieve it. And as a church, if we don't have a goal, well, you know, the old saying is true, you'll hit it every time. So what was Jesus' goal for his church? And what we learned together is that Jesus never set out to establish, quote-unquote, the church. That was not his ideal. If you remember the story, if you've been around the church, you know at one point, Peter, right? Peter, I denied you three times, and then Jesus still forgave him. And then Jesus looks at him and goes, I'm going to build my church on you. Now, that's the way your Bible and my Bible says it at home. There's a problem there. See, Jesus, a man born under the law, as we heard before, Jesus was born into this Old Testament temple model of faith. And so there were sacred men in sacred places uh, that, that told you what to do, how to get right with God. And, and so post-Jesus, unfortunately, in Christianity, we mostly just kind of kept the model and added Jesus. And so there was still sacred men in sacred places telling people what to do and how to get right with God. And... Uh, one of the things that you weren't allowed to do up until just a few hundred years ago was have the scriptures translated so that you could read them. And so several hundred years ago, a guy named Tyndale started translating um, the scriptures. And if you remember the story, when Tyndale translated what Jesus was saying about, I'm going to Peter on you, I'm going to build my church, that word in Greek, Jesus likely spoke in Aramaic, but that word in Greek in which it was recorded was the word ecclesia. The word ecclesia does not mean church. Tyndale described it, wrote it, translated it the way it was supposed to be, which was gathering. You know, I'm going to build my congregation, my gathering, my movement on you. Movements are dangerous for people's sacred men and sacred places with power. And so they made sure, well, they, the first thing they did was kill Tyndale. Um, and that was one of the two charges that he shouldn't have translated that word that way. Um, and then the second thing they did, they went to the people that were translating the King James Bible, the one you always hear about, and they went and told them, whatever you do, do not translate that into congregation or gathering or movement. Make it house of the Lord. Because we need to keep God in the box where we can control him and you have to have access to him through us. All right, what we did that day was learn that Jesus was starting a congregation and that God is no longer in the box, he's out of the box. And he dwells with and in his followers. This is crazy, exciting, brand new news. As we discussed when we had communion this morning, Jesus was not coming to take an old promise of God and add himself to it. Jesus was coming saying, no, 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 I'm fulfilling the old promise. That's done with. Don't sweat it anymore. I've taken care of it. Paid in full. All done. I'm going to start something new. It's a new promise from God. Now, at the heart of your Old Testament, that big portion of the Bible that you have at home, 
At the heart of the Old Testament is the Old Covenant, and that's this promise between God and this nation Israel. Israel, do what I say, and you'll be blessed. Don't do what I say, and you won't be. And at the hinge point of the Old Covenant was these sacrificial laws that we talked about, the atoning sacrifices that would cover your sins. But when Jesus comes, he fulfills for us all of the laws of the Old Covenant. The writer of a book in the New Testament called Hebrews is trying to explain what Jesus did to his Hebrew brothers and sisters. And he's, here's what he wrote. He said, multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice, even though the law required them. And then he said, this is speaking of Jesus, Jesus says, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sins, he abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces the entire system with the new covenant. Let me repeat that. He replaces the entire system with this new system, this new covenant, this new promise. By God's will, we've been purified and made holy once and for all through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. That's worth an amen. This is exciting news. This is good news. The old covenant is gone. I don't have to go to bed every night and go, oh my gosh, I hope I've done more good than bad. That's the only way I'm going to be accepted by God. The new covenant, Jesus says, by faith in him alone, you can be made right with God. And then Jesus goes, by the way, my covenant has with it commands too, but not 600 of them. I only have two guy by the name of John, who is one of the followers of Jesus. He writes this first-hand account of what he saw. He was so close to Jesus that whenever he refers to himself, he'd often say, I, John, the apostle Jesus loved. That was the kind of relationship they had. At one point, this is what he records Jesus saying, a new command I'm giving you. Not the old ones. You get 630 old ones. I'm giving you a new one. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another, as I have loved you. Now, can I get you to say that with me? As I have loved you. Now, this is not love as we normally know it. This is not romantic love. This is not brotherly love. See, the Greeks had a word for it. It was this word agape. Agape was not a feeling, but it was an, an action word. It was a verb. It, love is not something that you feel. It's not something you fall in and out of. It wasn't an emotion, but it was this self-sacrificing, self, um, uh, not self-seeking choice love. Jesus goes, there's this new command, there's a new covenant, and this command underlies it. Don't worry about all of the old laws. I have fulfilled all of those for you. Focus on this one. All the other stuff will fall into place. Love one another as I loved you. In fact, he goes on, he goes, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. People will know that you are a follower of Jesus. This is going to blow your mind. Not if you put a fish bumper sticker on your car. Okay? You don't need to put... I, I'm, I'm not me to offend anyone. That's wonderful. If you have a fish bumper sticker, right? And then you got the whole thing with Darwin, the fish eating Darwin, because that's loving too, right? But um, so we are not even to be known as people that are good people. What Jesus says is, if you want the world to know you're my follower, the way they'll know is how you love one another. 
Think about it. It makes perfect sense, right? I mean, if you had this community like you do in the early church where people are gathering, they're, they're in a movement loving one another the way Jesus loves them, you don't think people outside of the church would start to look at that and go, wow, that is something else. The way those people seem to care for one another and, and care for the orphans and the sick and the widows, you don't think they'd be drawn to that? Because I'm not sure the fish-eating Darwin is bringing them in by the droves. I'm going to get in trouble for that one, I know. <laughs> See, here's, my wife has given me one of those looks where you're going to get in trouble for that. Here's the problem for you and I. I. I don't think we take this command seriously enough. In fact, I know we don't take it seriously enough. As the pastor of your church, I have been in, uh, in leadership in, in this church and in, in one over 20 years ago. For, I've been in church leadership, which makes me kind of a pretty boring guy, I imagine. But for a long time, and nobody has... You know what the common questions are? What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? Can I do this? Can't I do that? How much is too much? How far is too far? Steve Fisher, our old youth pastor, had one of the great lines of this. The Bible talks about this. Paul in his writings talks about it all the time. I've come to set you free. Jesus goes, you are free from the law. And then we do what? We run back to it. Well, what, is the, what, is the, what does it say about this? What does it say about that? And Steve one time was teaching um, a cultural uh, a topic in uh, youth group. So it was something to do with something that was going on in the culture. Kid goes to school the next day. It comes up in a group of his friends. And so the kid goes, hold on. Runs to his phone, calls Steve up and goes, what's our position on this? <laughs> right? Because we fall immediately back into... Wait a minute, hold on, I got a book of the law over here. Let me look it up. There's 600, and, well, now, imagine how there many there be now, right? But there's all these laws. Let me find which one applies to this situation, and I'm going to give it to you. See, that's oftentimes how we live. So many of us grew up in faith systems, which are old covenant plus Jesus. We need to be good. We need to obey the laws. We need to do the right things. And we need to make sure we do enough just to outweigh the bad things. Look, I'm not perfect. I just have to make sure I've done more good than bad because God's got a point system up there. And if I had just died last night before I did this thing, then I'd probably be all right. But now I've got to do two good things today in order to outweigh. And so we take this old covenant mentality and we bring it in to what Jesus is doing. And, and Jesus is going, you're messy. You, you missed it. I'm doing something new. God is not a judge in the sky balancing if you've done good enough. Jesus' role was not to make sure that you understood all the rules. Yes, he paid the price for your sins, but we have to relate, start to relate to God, not through law-keeping. Now, this is controversial. I, most, you don't hear it a lot. Honestly, I mean, who would want to tell their kids this? Right? Because the... You know, fear and law does a really good job of keeping people in line, coming to church. Sacred men in sacred places, they want to make sure that, that, that we keep all of these things going. To that end, a religious leader came up to Jesus one time. He said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus, out of all these commands, which is the most important to keep God on my side? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. And the second, remember we learned this last week, the second is like it, which does not mean second in position. It means it's of equal value. It is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes, he gets crazy. Okay, Jesus just gets crazy. All, this could get a guy crucified. Oh, wait. All the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, 
All of that hang on these two commands. See, whenever the scriptures say the law and the prophets, that's Jesus talking about the old covenant, the old covenant teachers, the old covenant rules and restrictions and prophecies. Jesus is saying all of your religion hangs on those two things. How much of it hangs on there? I just want to make sure. How much? All of it. You believe that? Now, if you think I'm being too radical, you, you might have a problem with the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Apostle Paul was a Jew among Jews. He was a righteous man among righteous men, a sacred man among sacred men. He, at one point, lists all the reason he's the most righteous guy you have ever met. And then at one point, right after he goes, let me explain to you who I am and what I've done, goes on and on about how righteous he is. And then he goes, and you know what I consider it all? I can't say that word in church. But it's something like dung. That's what it's all worth. And then he says to the church in Galatia this, he goes, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let me repeat that because I'm not sure we get it. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The reason I I think we don't get it is over my last 20 plus years in leadership, I have never had somebody come to me. They've often asked, have I given enough? Have I been good enough? Did I do enough? Not once has anyone ever come to me and go, John, I am so worried about meeting Jesus. Why? I'm not certain I've loved enough. Not once. I mean, have you guys ever gone to bed at night? Gone, I think I blew it today. Don't think I loved enough. Because some, nobody, nobody taught us this. It was like, well, there's the old, there's all the laws, and then there's Jesus who makes sure we understand all the laws. And Jesus goes, no, I'm giving you two new commandments. Here's what they are. Love God and love other people. Paul wrote, not to two young lovers on their wedding day, but to a church that was all fluffed up and fighting. Here's what he said. He goes, look, guys, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, I could fathom all of the mysteries and I have all knowledge. If I have faith that can move a mountain, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Do you see how serious Paul is about this? If I give everything I possess to the poor, I give my body over to hardship that I could boast, but I don't have love. I got nothing. Now what I'm trying to do is convince you have the importance of love in this new covenant of Jesus. Paul goes, look at this. If you want to know, there's only one thing that counts. So if it's the only thing that counts, here's the question for you this morning. How good are you at it? I mean, I know you're really good. Most of you, 99% of you are really good at thou shalt not murder. Right? <laughs> Coveting, I lose a couple of you there. You know? Language, that's a whole other issue. How are you at love? Like, have you ever sweated that one out? i got to get better at that. And maybe I really shouldn't ask you. Maybe I should ask your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents or your siblings or your coworkers. Now, that could be an awkward question, I want you to know. And I, I do promise you that I will not ask your spouse in the foyer after church today how good a lover you are. Those are the kind of questions that get pastors fired. But... It is a good question. I mean, how good a lover are you? Now, here's what we're going to do. For the rest of the series, I am going to teach you to be a better lover. 
I thought about putting this on a billboard downtown in Chester for the series, How to Be a Better Lover this Sunday at Mendham Hills. But then job security came into my head again and I chickened out. See, you've got Paul, who's this phenomenal keeper of the law. He spent his whole life, he went to school, he studied the Torah, he packed it all in, he knew everything, and he did it all right. And he had the change from being the great keeper of the law to the great lover of God and people. And this great lover, Paul, he actually lays out principles and practices for what love is and what love isn't. And I can tell you from experience, you can become a better lover. And so this week, I am going to introduce you to principle one in Dr. Eisman's course on loveology. Who's ready? I didn't think so. I, I want you to know before we start class that this is going to be the most difficult class you have ever taken. If you think the lectures are tough, the homework is going to be brutal. Here's why. Because this kind of love that, the, that, that Jesus is talking about, that Paul is writing about, this agape love, this charitable love, unmerited love, self-sacrificing love, perhaps an often unreturning love, is anything but natural. This will, you will fight it. Watch, you're going to feel it today. When I'm teaching you about this love, there's something in you that's going to go, that's wrong. Oh, that's just wrong. That can't be right. I'm telling you, watch. It doesn't come naturally. It's the antithesis of, of what flows from us. But ladies and gentlemen, this is the good news, okay? God has left the building. And he dwells now in the hearts and lives of those who follow him and empowers them to live differently. You don't have to live naturally. You can live supernaturally. And if you would lean into God, you, because God is love, you will begin to love. Back to Paul's letter to the fighting church in Corinth. He goes, let me, let me tell you how to love. Here's what he says. He says, love, agape, not feelings now, right? You don't fall in and out of agape. Love the verb, agape, it does not envy. Pause. Is envy natural or unnatural? Oh, I am so good at envy. I don't even have to try. Just flows quite naturally. Neighbor gets an 83-inch plasma. I see the box sitting out on when I drive to work, you know, at the garbage can, and I think to myself, good for you, Jack. You deserve a TV like that. <laughs> I immediately go, I'm such a loser. I have a 65-inch TV. How can I live? How can I... Right? I mean, envy just, it just comes up quite naturally. When the guy in the cubicle next to you gets a promotion, and he gets an office, but you're stuck in your 8x8 metal fabric covered castle, do you find yourself just overjoyed for him? Do you ever think to yourself, I wish I could work up some jealousy, but I'm just so happy for him? <laughs> no. Because what we're talking about here is not natural. Agape, he goes on, Love, it does not boast. Stop. When your kid makes the all-star team, when your daughter hits a home run, when your son scores a touchdown, where is the first place you go to memorialize it? Facebook, because you know I want to know all about it, right? It's natural to boast. This is why when we go to the gym and we do it for a certain number of weeks or months in a row, our clothes become a little tighter. And when we stop going to the gym, we suddenly need to go find looser-fitting things. 
because we want to boast or we want to hide, but it is not natural to not boast. Let's keep going. Love, it's not proud. Stop. Because if you're like me, oftentimes you're like, well, proud. I'm not proud. I mean, I'm not a proud person. Until you get disrespected. Until someone treats you like they are smarter than you, bigger than you, stronger than you, more spiritual than you, more successful than you, then you start to go, hmm. Paul sums it up this way. He goes, look, love doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. Agape is not self-seeking. Agape is not self-seeking. Guess what you've been, you and I have been doing since the moment we crawled out of the womb? Self-seeking. It's natural. But agape is not self-seeking. The Greek phrase literally means agape does not seek the things of itself. Self-focus, the antithesis, I can never get it right, the antithesis, I don't know why that doesn't come out, the antithesis of agape, right, is... The the Corinthian church was really struggling with self-seeking. It's evident if you look at the church's divisiveness. They were fighting with their leaders. That's chapters 1 through 3. They they were fighting over Paul, chapter 4. Legal issues and the law, chapter 6. Attitudes towards communion, chapter 11. Attitudes towards spiritual gifts, chapter 12. Paul eventually gets so full, full up with it. He goes, look, stop focusing on your own needs. And he comes up with just an outlandish idea. He goes, here's the new deal. Love one another, and love is not self-seeking. Where would you get an idea like this? That's preposterous. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You guys remember, it seems like a couple of years ago, but that's what happens when you get old. It's probably like 10 years ago or more. Remember the WWJD bracelets? What would Jesus do bracelets? And uh, I remember my kids were younger at the time and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to get them WWJD bracelets because this way, every time they're about to step out of line, they'll look down and they'll think, well, what would Jesus do, right? And that's not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not making fun of that. But, but there's a lot of um, old covenant there, right? Like, what are all the things, the, the, the things that I have to do to stay right with God, to keep within the laws? Now, if you think about when Jesus was alive, there were sacred men in sacred places. If you ask them, hey, guys, you know, we're following Jesus around. We're thinking about making bracelets, WWJD. What do you think? These guys, here's what, what they would have said. They would say, you, you don't want to do what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't obey a lot of the laws. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus touches the people that you weren't supposed to touch. That's against the law. Jesus would eat with people you're not supposed to eat with. That was against the law. Jesus would forgive people who were said to be unforgivable. And that was against the law. Jesus would feed and heal on the Sabbath. And that was against the law. In fact, here's what I think we should do. We should have bracelets that say HWJL. How would Jesus love? Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Why? Because he loved us. Where does Paul get this example of self-sacrificing love from? He says it explicitly. 
He says, listen, follow God's example. As dearly loved children, walk in the way of agape. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's how you walk. We're to give ourselves up for each other. Not not self-seeking. Get ready because you're not going to like it. But laying aside our plans and our hopes and our dreams and our agendas and our comforts and our needs and our wants, just as Jesus did that for you. He loved us before we loved him. While we were yet sinners, we weren't doing anything to deserve it. We're to do that for other people. We're to do that for other people. So how good a lover are you? Now I'm going to give you, Paul wanted to keep it simple. So he actually, New Testament talks about this concept everywhere, but we keep defaulting back to laws. The New Testament talks about it everywhere. So I'm going to give you the dirty little word here, and you're not going to like it. But you said you, you, you stayed for rule, for, you know, well, not rule, I don't want to give that, we'll use that word, but you, you stayed for class one on becoming a better lover. So I'm going to give you the dirty little word that underlies love. It's going to be your homework. It's step one in Dr. Eisman's class on loveology. Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesians, he puts not self-seeking into this one word. Are you ready? See, you're not ready. (laughs) Who wants it? (laughs) You're not going to like it. Here's what he said. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's it. I'll see you next week. (laughs) Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. When's the first time you learned what it was like to submit? Because if you're like me, you learned it painfully. My dad, who is just a great dad, uh, and I love him to death. I'm probably going to go watch the Giants lose with him today. Um, <laughs> we, uh, he used to do something that he would call man training um, for us. And you got to remember, it was the 70s. Times were a little more innocent. Um, and so part of the man training was him just doing stuff to us to try to teach us to be a man. And every once in a while, fun now, fun, okay? Don't me call Dyfus. Um, every once in a while, we'd be wrestling around, and he would take us by the head, and he'd push our heads into the cushion of the couch, really hard, and he would say, say uncle. And of course, you know, I'm trying to be a man, and I'm going, well, I'm not going to say uncle. And he just kept pushing my face into the couch, and you know, my dad was six, my dad was 6'5 and 230, I'm still not 6'5 and 230, and he would keep my face in the cushion until I couldn't breathe, and eventually I'd say uncle. And that was my uh, way to understand submission. I hate submission, <laughs> right? I'm not really sure that, w- that was man training in hindsight. I think it <laughs> laid the groundwork for a lot of future counseling, I think, actually. But. Paul says, that's not, what, that's not what the scripture is talking about here, okay? Paul is saying that there's something foundational. The starting point for love is submission. Some of you know where this comes from in the scripture, this Submit to one another comes from Paul, right after this, he goes on to to speak of how this principle of mutual submission in love out of reverence for Christ, how it underlies 
every relationship, how a wife submits to a husband, how a husband submits to a wife, how a child submits to its parents. Heck, Paul goes on to say how citizens, imagine this in our politically charged environment, how citizens should submit to governments. Two years ago, half the folks in this room said, not my president, and now the same, the same half on the other side is going, not my president. Paul would go on to say, no, no, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Let me help you. And look, we're not talking about somebody being abused. We're not talking about, obviously, things outside of the bounds of God's will, okay? But Paul goes on to say crazy things like, citizens, submit to governments. He even at one point says, slaves, submit to your masters. Why? Because he's in favor of slavery? Is he in favor of the Roman government and what it's doing to the children of Israel? Is it because he's misogynistic? No, Paul speaks about mutual submission because it is the cornerstone of love. Submit here, it means to place yourself willingly, not head in the couch, willingly under the hopes, dreams, plans, comfort, and aspirations of others to put theirs ahead of yours, not because they're stronger, smarter, or more powerful. This is willing submission. It is a conscious choice you make to place yourself under another. Paul says, why do you do this? Because the person deserves it? Because they've earned it? Because they loved you first and you're returning it? No. Paul says, we submit to one another because we revere Jesus. Because we, we have a deep respect and admire Jesus. This is step one in love. What's the model? Where's the example? Well, here's what Paul said. It's everywhere, guys. It's everywhere. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, value others above yourselves. Here it comes again. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the, each of you, mutual submission, each of you to the interests of others. How about this? In your relationships, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. You have to think about this. Think about Jesus in submission. Okay, you've got the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything good, the creator of everything, God incarnate. But Jesus lives a life marked by submission. Who did Jesus need to submit to? Nobody. Who did Jesus submit to? Everybody. Watch. You might, to the Father, he says things like, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Other times he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now you might go, okay, I see submission in Jesus' life relative to God. But Jesus submits to man. He confines himself to human flesh. He's born in a stable, laid in a feeding trough. Jesus obeyed his parents, completed carpentry jobs for menial pay, submitted to John's baptism, paid Roman taxes, performed servant duties, relied on his disciples for his support. He surrendered to soldiers, subjected himself to illegal trials, yielded to Pilate's verdict, capitulated on the cross, and handed over his mission to his disciples. 
Why did Jesus submit to all of those things? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now you go and do likewise. And so now I ask you, when's the last time that you willingly submitted to somebody? Not because you had to, not because there was no choice, so I'm just going to have to accept it. When's the last time you willingly laid down something that mattered, a hope, a dream, a plan, comfort, in lieu of making somebody else's hopes, dreams, plans, and comfort come true? See, Agape is a very personal story for me. If you've been in one of our, our small groups, Joan and I have had small groups over the last bunch of years, Agape has really changed our relationship over the last, I don't know how many years it's been now, maybe six, eight years. By the way, Joni and I, 28 years ago yesterday, how about that? Just throwing that out there. That woman is a saint. What do you mean, yes? <laughs> Listen, so uh, I, nobody taught me how to love. Nobody taught Joan how to love, right? Like, I didn't know. I thought because I, I mean, I, 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 I was in love. But, you know, I, that was it. Nobody talked about self-sacrificing and all this other stuff. And, and so what I realized about eight years ago was that most of our love was based on wh what she was doing for me, right? Like I had a plan for my life and she fit in the plan, right? She looked good on my arm, cooked a good meal, right? Um, produced nice children. I never thought about this mentally, just so you don't think I'm a sicko. But <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking, right, I'm building my kingdom and this woman is going to Help me build my kingdom, right? She's going to meet, meet, oh, you know, you complete me, right? And then Joan was thinking the same thing. Now, most of you are going, well, that was just a bad decision up front, but, <laughs> but she's thinking the same thing. And so, you know, we had a pretty good marriage by world standards for a, for a long time. But then all of a sudden, I, because a spiritual mentor, I have a spiritual mentor in my life that speaks heavy things in my life. Like I was watching how he loved his wife and I started going, wow, that guy really, he's crazy. Um, and so, literally, he is. And I said, uh, I said, you know, I, I'm going to try to love my wife like that. And so, uh, then I started praying about it a lot and asking God, would you show me like where I'm, I'm bad at this? And I think God just loves showing you that. I mean, it's just, you know, it just once you, if you want to pray a prayer, just say, God, show me where I'm an idiot. And, uh, you'll just, you'll get answers to your prayers like crazy. And so God started showing me that I had not agaped my wife. I had not put her wants, needs, desires, plans, hopes, dreams ahead of my own. I had mine, and I continued to have them and hoped she'd just come along. couple of examples. Number one, I am, uh, you know, I have a strong personality and a strong nature, and so uh, it never occurred to me to submit my plans, hopes, dreams, and all the rest for holidays to hers. I want the Christmas tree where I want the Christmas tree. I want the kind of Christmas tree I want. I want the gifts in a certain way because that's the way I grew up and this is the way you do Christmas, right? Um, in fact, at one point we, we decided, here was where I was willing to submit. I was willing to submit by saying, okay, fine. We, I understand we have to go back and forth, families, Thanksgivings. So we'll do Thanksgiving at your family one year, Thanksgiving at my family one year, my family, your family, my family, your family, my family. Now you see, here's the deal. You can submit but actually not submit. Um, and so what I was doing was really not submitting, even though I was submitting. And so at one point a couple of years ago, Caleb, who, who is my son, uh, he, you know, 
the holidays were coming around. There was a Christmas commercial on, and Caleb looks at me, and he goes, hey, Dad, he goes, uh, it's going to be Thanksgiving in a few, we few weeks. Whose family are we having Thanksgiving with, moms or ours? See, when God, when you ask God to show you, like, and so then, you remember yesterday, last week, I was saying, who goes camping? Like, why would you go camping? I have no idea why you would enjoy that. I, I mean, you, I'd have to be paid a lot to desire, to desire to do it, right? You go to the beach. Well, I grew up going to the beach. I love the beach. What else would you do on vacation? Joan's family grew up camping. We've been married for 28 years. Do you know how many times we've gone camping? None. Right? None. Why? Because I, I can... I, I don't really want to put my dreams, hopes, plans, future, and aspirations under yours. So yours could come true. I just really want you to come along the ride for mine. Now, here's the scary thing about submission. You ready? Somebody needs to go first. And see, the story of submission is you're actually not worrying about if the other person is submitting because that's not, then you're just not getting it, right? Like, don't come to me and say, she's not submitting. I'll be like, well, I can't. are you? Like, I just want you to, you worry about you. Submit. And this isn't just a marriage thing. I'm going to show you what I mean. This is not just a marriage thing. But it's scary. I get it. But out of reverence for Christ, because you revere Jesus and what he did and his model, would you be willing to try this week, especially, listen, for, listen find out, discover, relook at those who you're in a relationship, what their hopes, dreams, plans were, and maybe you could lay yours down and start working now. Maybe you spent the last 20 years working on yours. What if you put them away for a while and started working on somebody else's? There is nothing more powerful in any relationship than mutual submission. But it is scary. I, I mean, I'm not being Pollyanna here. But John, I worked so hard to get to where I am. The schooling, the money, the hours, all so I could get this title and this power, and you want me to submit to somebody underneath me, lower on the scale than me? You want me to let somebody lower than me make the choice, make the call, make the decision? John, do you know what that could cost me? Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, yeah, John, come on. <laughs> you don't understand how broken this relationship is. I mean, I've been wronged over and over again. Still waiting for the apology, and I deserve an apology, and I just, ah, I'm harboring so much anger and frustration. He doesn't listen. She won't be reasonable. I mean, John, if, you, if I followed this, if I just started giving in, what if I gave an inch and, and they took a mile? Out of reverence for Christ, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. John, I mean, what about my hopes and my dreams and my plans? I really wanted a big house, a nice car, lots of kids. He's so cheap. John. She wants to stay home with the kids. We need the income. She's got to get back to work. Oh, my parents don't understand. All they ever do is come up with rule after rule after rule. John, there's no feelings even left at this point. We're just like mortgage partners. We barely even talk. 
If I give up on this point, where's it going to end? When would enough be enough? How much do I need to forgive? How much do I need to submit? Out of reverence for Christ in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. But he humbled himself and became obedient to death even to death on a cross. Ben, come up. Listen now, listen. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love one another as I have loved you. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who's ready for some homework? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> Here's your homework this week so you can be a better lover. Number one, without telling him or her, practice submitting to your spouse in a way that you might not normally. You know what? I am going to tuck away for a while my hopes, dreams, and plans in order that yours might happen. Number two, in your place of work, when asked to do something that you might usually disagree about. I want my staff to listen to this. In your place, <laughs> they want me to listen to it too. In your place of work, when asked to do something that you might usually disagree with or argue about or say, that's not my job, submit to the request that's been made. And lastly, if you're like me, if you have someone, a Christian mentor, a trusted Christian friend that knows God, ask him or her to identify an area in your life where you need to practice submission, an area where you need change in your life. And without arguing, or justifying, just do what they say. Submit to whatever it is you're told. And do you know why you should do this? All out of reverence for Jesus Christ, the hope of humanity. 